I thank you, God, for uh, once again another beautiful day. I thank you that we are all here and healthy, uh, that you have given us so many blessings that uh, we can come and have something to eat, have something to drink, uh, and really focus on you without a lot of external things in our minds. And Father, I pray now that you would help us even more in that, that you would help distractions not to come in and intrude, but we would use our minds to the glory of God, and we would really consider uh, what you'd have to say to us today as we discuss the, uh, the topic of apologetics and, and dealing with the world and their objections to it, but to do so with gentleness uh, and respect, trying to understand that uh, us knowing who you are, you form a relationship with us is due to your mercy and grace towards us, not anything that we did. We weren't better than other people and we weren't smarter. You opened up our hearts and our minds to understand the truth. And we just thank you for that. It's a humbling thing to know that we would be completely lost without you and we rely on you for everything. I pray, God, that you would strengthen each one here and that you would keep our minds focused on the worship of you. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this topic today is the existence of God. You probably have little notes there. They're not as, as extensive because all of this is, cons- this is part of the curriculum. There's not a whole lot of, uh, this is very much a classroom type lesson, not so much a Bible study as much as other ones were, at least in the construction of how they wanted me to do it. This is an interesting topic because uh, part of me actually wanted to kind of combine this with another class. I feel this one's like the easiest one to do. Uh, it's the first one that the curriculum typically starts with, and this is usually how people start thinking about talking to unbelievers. is like, oh, let's establish some common ground. But when you look at the statistics, they haven't significantly changed. I just looked them up. They're, the people that are identified, at least in America, as atheists is only about 8 to 9%. You know, like one out of 10 people you might meet will absolutely deny God. But most people don't, you know, which is consistent with what the Bible says, right? That they know in their hearts that God exists. They suppress the truth of Yahweh, right? They pr- suppress the truth of this particular God, but then they fill that in with whatever God they believe in, right? So when you think about arguments for the existence of God and you have six listed, these are great arguments, but I don't think that they're the ones that are the most important thing to think about. But I still think that it's, it's worth going through the class, it's worth talking about these things, so at least we have an understanding. We have some tools in our tool belt, so if we do interact with an atheist, we're not completely caught off guard. And we also kind of understand the found, our foundations. This is very much a presuppositional, uh, I would say, lesson, um, because you're starting with this idea that the, ol- the only things you can really know are things that come from the Christian worldview. Um, you've probably heard these kinds of arguments before, but that's really what this lesson is going to be about. So feel free through the course of this lesson to ask questions, bring up scenarios you've had with people that are unbelievers, and we can have a little bit more back and forth because even though there's a lot of material here, we don't have to go through all of it. We can kind of skim over it first and then dig down into the, the issues that we have with individuals. And I'll, if we don't have any questions, then I can bring up some more uh, actual scenarios I've come in contact with and um, how I've dealt with that. So when you're first talking with someone, uh, you know, you'll get a lot of questions about, okay, I may believe in God, right? You talk to someone, do you believe in God? Or Marty's favorite opening, which I've now co-opted, is uh, what's your religious background, right? You can start with that opening because a lot of people have some kind of religious background or they believe in God in some way. 
But you'll, you'll run into the same problems we were talking about last week. You'll run into the issues of reliability. Well, how do you know that your God's the real one? How do you know that the Bible you read is true? That's why we covered that first. But you may get into this issue of, what about this invisible God? How can you know something is, exists if you can't see it, right? If you can't see that there's something there. I think this is it's an interesting question because it's a question that's not unique to our time period. I think we sometimes think that we're enlightened, like we have this, this advancement in technology and science to the, the point where we are so much smarter than, the, than people were back then. But the funny thing is, is if you read passages throughout the Old Testament, you'll see people are saying, like in Psalm 53:1, you know, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So it's not like everyone believed in God back then, right? There was even people back in this day, right, in the time of David, who didn't believe in God or would say that there's not God or this God doesn't exist. It's hard to tell. I read some commentaries that said that this particular passage might be referring to the Christian God doesn't exist, but my God does. It's possible. Because if you think about back in the Roman uh, Empire, they called Christians atheists. Well, how can they be atheists if they believe in Yahweh? Well, it's because they rejected all the other hundreds of gods that Rome had, and they rejected Caesar as God. So they were atheists in the sense that they rejected other gods which is ironic because that's actually what atheists would say about us, right? Like, oh, well, I'm like you. I just reject one more God than you do type of thing. So it's, it's a very similar idea. But getting back to topic, so many people today don't believe that God exists or that's either conscious rejection, right? That's atheist, or more likely practical rejection. People live as God doesn't exist, right? So we're talking about two kinds of atheism here, right? One in the sense where they, they're very vocal, they're very militant, they say God doesn't exist. And there's another kind of rejection that is, unfortunately, sometimes things we struggle with, right? Where we, we live as if God doesn't exist, even though we say he does. So if you anticipate having a conversation about the existence of God, or you meet someone asks ask questions, that's the goal today, is just to equip you with some arguments for the existence of God that will kind of be springboards in talking about the gospel. Because remember what we said before, we never want to just defend the faith, we always want to have some kind of way of transitioning over to the gospel so we can say, this doesn't make sense, here's my defense, now let me talk about the offensive strike of the gospel. You know, challenging what they believe, challenging their worldview. So I'm just going to kind of go over what you have on your, your sheet. You'll see the, the six arguments there and then we'll go into more detail. So the first one is probability. Every day we exercise faith, and it's reasonable to have faith in the supernatural because faith is an aspect of our lives. Um, we'll, like I said, we'll get into more detail. Uh, second one is creation design. You've probably heard this one, right? Creation by intelligent designer is more intellectually plausible than creation by random chance. So it's defending it on that aspect. Anthropomor anthropomorphic arguments, things about ourselves, our conscience, our capacity for good and evil, yearning for eternity, religious experiences. These are best explained by the existence of God. Number four, the argument from immaterialism. The existence of love and beauty demonstrate that we do not live in a materialistic worldview or universe. The transcendental argument. Knowledge, logic, and science are only possible because God's existence is the precondition for all thinking and knowledge. The ontological argument. God is the being greater than which cannot be conceived. The greatest being conceivable possesses the attribute of existence, therefore God exists. That's obviously the most, we're going from the most practical to the most, I guess, philosophical, if that makes sense. So pick your, your stage, you know, 
evaluate the person you're talking to, figure out where they're likely to, to strike, and then, you know, if you're highly intellectual, ontological is probably where you want to go. A person that's more down to earth and doesn't really think philosophically that much, probably more probability in creation design is where you're going to go. Whereas, you know, more philosophically minded people are going to reject these ones for various reasons. So then you can make the transcendental, which is my favorite, or the ontological. Any questions on any of these so far? Julian? Sure. Just speak up. Make sure you project it really powerfully. I'm sorry, what? Just make sure you speak up and project the question. Uh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was sitting down with, with someone uh, not too long ago, um, and they mentioned to me that the technical word for God is, um, like, it's not actually exists. And so my question would be, because I don't, I don't remember the font, like, the, the complete details to be able to articulate it right now confidently, but um, the word exists would imply that at one point he did exist. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. So there's like another word that ends with S-I-S-T mm -hmm. that better explains God. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. The word. Ex so what you're saying is that the word existence implies a time in which you did not exist, right? You come into existence, right? And so, yeah, I, I've heard this uh, before too, and I can't remember the word you're talking about, but I have heard that. I don't think that. I think we're getting a little bit technical when we talk like that, a little bit um, semantic, because people kind of know what you mean. You know what I mean? Right. So you're asking, do we use the word existence because we're just kind of accommodating the world's language? Maybe to a degree, but I think the other thing too is that you have to use words that are common parlance, right? If you use something that's too outside people's vocabulary, you're going to lose them. So use a word that even though it's not technically perfect, you can explain it with a couple more sentences and that's going to bring the person into your conversation a little bit better than learning you know, like the really, uh, I call them like, you know, the $2 theological terms, right? Because as soon as you use that, you're going to have to explain it immediately, right? Here's the word, you know, uh, now I can't think of, now I can't think of the word I was going to use. Christian, while I'm thinking. Possibly. Right. Right. It's a precondition. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. There's a lot of different words that can, that can work, and that's the difficulty with language, right, is that there's words that have just a bit of a flavor or a nuance. But I think using a word is not, uh, as long as you say, I'm using the term existence, but that's not what I mean, right? I'm just using the closest word I can say about God having being, right, and being everywhere. Good question, though. You know, that is, that is a difficulty you're going to run into, especially with people that want precision. Um, they're going to argue over words, and you have to kind of say, I'll let you have that word. I'm not sure what it is, but you know what I mean, right? And just say, listen, I, I know that I'm not perfect in my speech, but let's keep communicating so we can get to really what I, what I believe versus what you think I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Any other questions or comments on that before we get started? I know this is, like I said, this is something that, um, as I've talked to people, I haven't had a lot of arguments for the existence of God, although I have run into some. So I think it's still worth going through this uh, in terms of having some, some arguments. So we're going to start from the, like, kind of the basic to the, uh, the more complicated, but just because I don't know where I'm going to end or if I have to cut off early, 
I'm just going to skip ahead <laughs> to my favorite one, right? Because I think this one is actually the, the, I think we should go to number six, or not six, number five, transcendental. Because like I said, it's my favorite. It's the one I know the most. It's the one I use the most. And so I think that this is one that if you have this down, you can pretty much uh, argue for it uh, pretty easily. So the idea here is that um, is it, it's transcendental, it's not ontological. Is my number ring wrong? Hold on. Yeah. I think I just have this out of order. Yeah, there we go. This page was out of order for some reason. Okay, so the idea behind transcendentalism is this idea that how do you know what you know what you know, right? Like, you're t like the, idea, the idea here is if you talk to a person, you say, if they say, I don't believe in God, you say, okay, how do you know that, right? Because they're saying what we know, and they're challenging what we know. So this is always the thing that you're going to bump into, right, is that each person doesn't actually have a textbook with them at the time that they're talking to you, right, and say, oh, well, here it is. Even your Bible may not be in your hand. So the question is, how do you know what you know? And people will say, well, I believe in these particular books, kind of like how we believe in a particular book, right? I believe in science and the things that I've been taught. Because the fact is, most people haven't gone out and actually tried to experience or experiment in the thing they've actually done, right? There's tons of information we believe that we've never actually observed. We just know that there's enough people that have observed it to believe it. Think of it this way. Here's an interesting thought experiment. There are people that are colorblind. Anyone colorblind here? No. You're colorblind. So you, see, so you don't see certain colors, right? What color don't you see? Green, brown, red? Okay, so certain kinds of blue. But we know blue exists, right? So either we're all lying, <laughs> right? And blue never exists, right? Because it doesn't exist in his worldview. Or blue objectively exists, and it doesn't matter what our brother believes or doesn't believe, right? Because it exists. It's just his experience is limited because of just some physical limitation he has. And that can also extend into the mental, right? Like, there are things that, we can, that can exist that we cannot even comprehend, we don't realize exist, and other people will tell us they exist, and now we have to start going into, does it objectively exist? Is it something we can measure? Can we actually look at that stuff? So it's an interesting, like I said, it's a little bit more philosophical, but it'll be useful for you, and, and trust me, just stay with me. And if you have any questions afterwards, let me know. So when we're talking about the transcendental argument, we're talking about what we know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to build up things that are statements that can't be proven physically. So the first question is, do you believe that absolute truth exists? I actually should have put this in my notes, actually. Make a note if you have a pen. This is homework. Does absolute truth exist? Yes. Now, right, yes. Most people have to say yes. If they say no, you can simply respond, is it absolutely true? right? And you kind of caught them, right? This is why it's a perfect argument. So they have to acknowledge, yes, some absolute truth exists, even if I don't know all of it. Okay, second argument. Do you know some things to be true? Well, they just told me that absolute truth exists. So they must know one thing at least to be true, which is that one. So absolute truth exists, and some things you know to be true. Okay, does logic exist, right? The law of non-contradiction is this idea that two things can't be in different places at the same time, in the same way, right? My car, my car can't be out in the parking lot and in this auditorium at the same time in the same way, right? That's a contradiction. We understand that. We make these choices all the time. It's just that we're now breaking it down very simply, right? And they'd have to say, yes. 
okay? So absolute truth exists, logic exists, knowing things exist, right? So you can't argue with me that we can't know. You can't argue with me that there's not objective truth that exists outside of reality, like the color blue, right? You have to agree that we can know things logically. Okay, great. Now the next thing is, is logic material or immaterial? Is it something I can touch? Can I pick up logic? Can I feel logic? Or is logic something that's immaterial? It's immaterial, right? It's not something that exists. So the argument for God is without God, you can't explain anything. Because where there's things like objective truth, things that are knowable, logic, these things don't exist in the physical, material, natural world, right? But we know they exist. How is that possible, right? Now, the argument, now see, this is the problem for the existence of God. I've just proved to you God exists, but how do I make the transition now from God, Elohim, a great spirit, that could be anything, right, to Yahweh, the Christian God? How to make that connection? And that's where the difficulty always comes in with starting with this versus a presuppositional God of the Bible exists, and I'm going to argue with you as if you know he exists, his moral law is on your heart, right? But that said, you can still start with this and then transition and say, the God of the Bible is the only God that fits these preconditions. He's the only way that's revealed himself in such a way that he is all-knowing, all-existent, everywhere at once, right? Uh, that he literally orders the thoughts and the minds of people, right? Logic kind of thing. So that's the idea. Any questions on that argument? It was very, like I said, it's very, uh, I don't know what it's called. Philosophical, I think is the word is, but you can see where the argument goes. No? Everyone got it? Great. If you have questions afterwards, let me know. So let's go back to number one. Faith in the supernatural is plausible, more plausible than the alternative. There is a misconception that people of faith generally, and Christians specifically, believe in things that seem like fairy tales or fables or myths, right? It's like there's, if you have faith, then you're, then you're believing in everything. They do not believe in things based on facts or evidence or rational thinking, right? That seems to be the separation, that there's people that believe in facts, evidence, scientific reasoning, and there's people that just believe whatever they're told to believe. They believe in fairy tales and fantasy. But the question is, what does it mean to have faith? Have you ever thought about what the word faith means? Or, you know, this is the problem with Christianity, right? Is we use terms, and we've heard it used so many times that we have a kind of a, an understanding based on context, right, contextual clues, whenever you read a book, right, so how the teacher would teach you, it's like, just read through it, and even if you don't know what the word means, from the surrounding context, you'll kind of have an understanding of what that word means, you don't necessarily need to look it up in the dictionary, and if you see that word enough times, you start to form an understanding. The problem with that is that we start to form the understanding of words incorrectly. We hear it used enough times in the incorrect sense, and that becomes our new understanding. Like, have you noticed that the term ignorant has a very, like, negative connotation? If someone calls says like, well, you're just ignorant, it's like, oh, they've just used a slur against me. But ignorant doesn't mean that. It doesn't actually have any kind of emotional context. It just means you don't know something, right? You're ignorant of a subject. It just means you don't know. So it doesn't necessarily have to have a negative connotation, but if you use so negatively over time, we attach that meaning to it. Same thing with bigotry or bigot. Does anyone know what bigot means? Yes. <laughs> what does it mean? Right. That's actually what it means. It doesn't mean racist. It doesn't mean like that you hate someone. It simply means that you're unwilling to listen to someone else's argument. That's all it means. So you'll use it, hear it used wrong all the time. People will call racists bigots. Oh, this is bigotry. You don't like, you're a bigot if you don't like whatever it is, right? Um, homosexual agenda, whatever it is. 
But if you're trying to have an argument with them, if you're trying to explain them rationally, you're not being a bigot. You're actually trying to understand their argument and argue for your own point of view, so, which is kind of interesting. So you'll hear that thrown around. We may even throw it out incorrectly because we have inserted into it all kinds of different meanings that's not there. So in the same way, we have to be careful when we use Christian terms that we really know what we're talking about when we use these terms because if they don't know and you don't know, well, then you're going to talk past each other, right? So faith is this idea that you trust in something and you believe in something put together. That's the way I always defined it. It's, it's defined a little nebulously, but that's the way I've always thought about it. You can believe in something, like the devils believe in Jesus and they tremble, right? But they don't trust in Jesus, right? There's not promises made to them that they then trust in. If that's hard to understand, think of it in a practical application. You're driving on the road, right? There's other people and there's laws that you're all supposed to obey, <laughs> like signals, right? And to a certain degree, you trust them that they're not going to come into your lane, right? Kind of move in and break the rules. But as soon as they start breaking the rules, your trust in them goes down. Your faith in humanity starts to plummet, right? And you're like, you know what? I'm going to back off and let this guy go ahead of me. You know, you start losing faith in their ability to drive correctly. Maybe you pull off, right? So this is the idea of you believe in everyone has the same rules and you trust them temporarily. But as soon as they, the trust is broken, you no longer have faith right? Same thing with a chair. Do you believe that that chair can hold your weight? Right? Well, sure, I believe it. Okay, now go sit in it. Do you trust it? Do you have faith that that chair can do it? Do you have faith in the carpenter who built it? Right? And if it looks a little shaky, a little wobbly, if I see someone else sitting in it, it kind of shakes a little bit, I'm like, maybe not. You know, trust but verify that whole, uh, you know, chestnut. So, yeah, exactly. So, there, when we think of faith, we have to think we don't just believe in something, I hold firmly to it. I trust it. I believe in it. So the bottom line is this. In order to live in the world, we are all required to exercise some kind of faith in something. We exercise faith every day by using the three tools of faith, which is reason, intuition, and our own experiences, right? We, we do that all the time. I reason, that chair can hold my weight. I might have some experience with that particular chair. Uh, and I use my intuition. If I see other people do it, I can see kind of like, I can understand that. But we have to be careful that when we use all these tools that we're considering questions also of greater importance than just driving in chairs, right? Many people, when talking about matters of faith, decide that only observable, knowable, scientific information can be used. Well, beware that this creates an anti-supernatural bias, Right? leading to an agenda-centric approach to evaluating all evidence versus an evidence-centric approach. So um, let me break that down. It seems like religion is probably the greatest area in which people bring predetermined agendas of belief into it. They say, this group of evidence over here, evidence and intuition and stuff, is usable, but this particular experiences and evidence is not usable, right? You can bring me science books, but don't bring me the Bible right? I'm, I'm now creating a bias where I'm saying I'm not going to believe any of this even though it's historical, right? doesn't make sense. The other thing too to understand is that if a person, going back to the transcendental argument, if a person says, well, I can trust what I see based on my knowledge and my logic and my reasoning, well, how can you trust that your logic and your reasoning are trustworthy, right? Same thing we were talking about with our brother over there that can't see blue. How do you know that your logic and your reasoning are trustworthy? Well, I verify that with my 
logic and my reasoning. And how do you know that's valid? Well, I use that with my, so it's a circular argument, right? It always has to go back to itself in the same way that we have the same problem. We're gonna have to go back to God and that's gonna be the starting point and everything will always circle back because when we're talking about things that start arguments, there always has to be an axiomatic or a precondition we always assume. So don't let the unbeliever get the moral high ground acting like, well, I just use my logic and reasoning and you start with God. They also start with something that they can't prove. They just are kind of hiding it through rhetorical, and, and you know, it's not something that they know they're doing. They've been taught this, right? They've been taught to rhetorically use this device that I'm of a superior grade because I'm not using these supernatural biases. I'm using my natural biases, right? But we just proved that there's certain things like logic that are immaterial. So they have to tap into the objective truth that things that are immaterial exist in order to argue that only materialism exists. And I lose anyone? Probably a little bit, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Catch up. Talk to me afterwards. So, um, if a student prints in or a religious class is talking about the life of Jesus, you know, whatever it is, if the assumption was that he's not God, right, the talk of his uh, forgiveness or resurrection can only be metaphorical. The idea here is that if we assume that the events we're talking about the Bible, and the most important thing, right, the Jesus' forgiveness and resurrection, if you're already starting with a natural bias, you will always try to explain it through natural re means. Think of it this way. There's a story in the Bible that I'm sure you're all familiar with. I unfortunately didn't put it in my, in my notes. But it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Yep. They both die, go both down, and uh, the rich man calls out to Abraham and Lazarus and says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they may be warned about this torment in which I find myself, right? This is Jameson Revised Edition, in case you're wondering about the translation. And he says to them very, something very interesting. He says, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, then it doesn't even matter if someone rises from the dead and goes and tells them. And that's a challenging statement, that if you have the Bible, you have the best evidence for the existence of God, right? There's actually a part in Peter where he says something very similar. He says, we saw him on the holy mountain, and yet you have a more sure word in the Bible that you hold in your hand. He saw Jesus in the transfiguration, and he says in his letter, if you hold the Bible in your hand, you have a more sure word than my experience and my testimony is telling you, which is an amazing thing. Now, the question is, do we believe that, right? Do we believe that the Bible that we hold in our hands, I'm holding paper here, but you know, I mean, the Bible, we, do we believe that the Bible we hold in our hands is actually more important than having a religious experience, right? I think a lot of people struggle with that. They want that religious experience. They want the dream. They want something to show for it. That's why you have these revivals that happen and everyone kind of goes to it. They want to see something. They want something. They want a sign, right? So even the people in the, Old, in the New Testament, they're like, show us a sign, show us a sign. They wanted to see something, wanted something like these unbelievers want. They want to be able to see it. But I think now it'd be funny if, if like, you know, an angel came and just kind of like opened a scroll and said, hey guys, all believe in Jesus. Yeah, the Jesus of the Bible, yeah, the one you've had. Yeah, they were right. Closes the scroll and gets away. Like, that was an alien. That was some kind of crazy being from another, like people would deny it immediately. If you, like you think, like whatever, I, I like to do this. I'm saying, would there be any evidence that could, could convince you if it physically showed up? And people will say things like that. I'm like, you're telling me you wouldn't think it was aliens? That wasn't someone trying to pull the wool over your eyes, CIA, Illuminati, something like that, right? No? Uh, you would believe, you'd probably look for a naturalistic explanation because they have these biases, right? And you have to know you're going into that. Yes, Christian. Frank Turk uses the question of 
Right. And the thing is, uh, we, we kind of understand this. Evidence is very tricky. Um, there is, um, I'm trying to think of the exact situation that just happened. I was pointing this out to a, a coworker. There was an event that happened. It happened in one of these elections that just happened. Um, oh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't the last midterms, but it was the one before that. Uh, there, was a, there was a point where there was a, um, an election that happened, and the Republicans came out ahead. And it was interesting because that that's just a fact, right? The Republicans came out ahead in that election, and they gained more seats or more power than the Democratic Party. And if you looked at the news, that factual statement, that thing that happened, was interpreted by the right as, whatever we're doing is great, we need to keep it up. The other side was, because we didn't pass this big omnibus bill, they're punishing us for it. When the reason why they were, that people on the right said it was, was because they hadn't passed that bill. So the bill wasn't passed, and the right said, this is what people wanted, and the Democrats, like, they're mad at us that we didn't do it. So my point is, they interpreted the same event, the same evidence, in different ways. Right? And that's the problem that we have with any kind of evidence. We always bring our own assumptions, our own biases, and we look at the evidence and then we slot it into our worldview based on how it fits. And that's always going to be a difficulty. Uh, once again, if you make a claim or an assertion, that's something that you are claiming is either true or false. But evidence is not necessarily true or false. It backs up an assertion. It reinforces it. It gives it what's called, in logical terms, grounds. Right? There are grounds in which you can build an argument. So that's, like I said, it's getting very philosophical, but the point is, is that the reason why we have to use these as springboards and then bring the gospel is you're never going to argue a person purely through argumentation into the kingdom. Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> it fails, right? Because God has to change their heart. So we give a defense of the faith, like Peter says, and we give the gospel, but don't think through knowing a lot of fancy arguments. You're going to persuade a person. You may destroy all their arguments, and I've actually had this happen. They're like, you know that transcendent argument, the one I explained to you? You're right. That's perfectly logically consistent. I have no argument, but I still don't believe in God, right? And you're like, what are you going to do, right? He's even agreeing with all my premises. He's even agreeing with all my, and he still didn't believe in God. And that started to change my mind on how I was arguing, so. Okay, number two, creation and design. I like this one. I think that this one's actually um, very interesting. So how did everything start? What is the origin of the universe, right? This, these are questions that people, although it's not entirely practical, it's still people, things people want to know. And either the universe is self-created or is created by something else. That's pretty binary. The question is, which view do you have faith in? It is not a matter of science versus faith, but faith versus science. Or faith versus faith, faith in what you believe. Naturalism assumes that the origins of everything began through time and chance, right? Impersonal force, whatever you want to call it, time, energy, matter, space. Uh, plus time plus chance equals creation. Given enough time, anything can happen, right? The, the classic example is a bunch of, if, if there's like billions of monkeys all randomly hitting a typewriter, will they create the works of Shakespeare given enough time, right? You've probably heard that argument before. Um, so it's, it's linked to probability and likelihood of creation coming through a long period of time. But uh, when we talk about things like the most build basic building blocks of life, a single strand of DNA, right? It's containing hundreds of uh, molecules in the exact precise order. The probability of a strand of DNA forming through mutations uh, in the primordial soup, so to speak, is extremely low. This is the interesting thing about DNA is that the more we study it, the more we see that it's 
it's much more complex than even time can give it credit for. So there was actually a documentary that was out a little while ago called Expelled. It had Ben Stein in it. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. Yeah, but one of the most interesting parts of that documentary was they had Richard Dawkins, if you know that name, a very famous atheist, and they actually got him to interview. Ben, ben Stein was actually able to interview him. And he brings up this idea of things like DNA. How can this evolve? Even with billions of years, it's still so complex. How can you get it? And he said, well, we were seeded here by aliens. <laughs> and you're thinking like, yeah, you have to push the problem back further because even he understands that the formation of the earth doesn't give you enough time. And he's talking billions of years. He believes in billions of years. He thinks that's not enough time. So you see the problem because then the, the, move, the problem gets moved back further and further. Well, who, where did those aliens come from and how did they evolve? And then who, who seeded them and so far and so, so on and so forth. It doesn't matter if we're talking about how big the planets are all the way down to how small DNA is. You can use the macro and the micro. They both prove God's existence just through the complexity in which they have. Like DNA, when we think about words on a page, right? This is just ink, right? <laughs> this is ink on paper. This doesn't actually say anything. When I, what you're seeing is the communication of my brain to yours, right? You're interpreting this because we have, I can, I can encode information into paper, right? And then you decode it with your brain, right? We understand that? Same thing with DNA. DNA encodes information and then it decodes it in order to make things like proteins and assemble cells. But how do you get information that's, once again, logical? It's immaterial. It doesn't exist in the physical material plane. It's something that actually has to be programmed in by a programmer or a creator, right? It doesn't make sense for it to arise randomly. How can things assemble things? How can it know that it needs to assemble something before it assembles it, right? Even when you think about protein, protein needs to, to fold a certain way. Either there's a left-handed folding or a right-handed folding. And if two of those interact, they kind of cause a, like a death of the cell. So it needs to be done in a very specific way. There, for a long time, there was this idea, you even see this in Jurassic Park, if I can, you ever seen a really, really old movie called Jurassic Park from the 90s, <laughs> right? It's gonna get to that point now. But if you look at Jurassic Park, there's actually a part where this like little animated DNA strange says, oh, there's all this junk DNA and we just kind of filled it in, right? And there's not junk DNA. They now know that a lot of DNA is actually error correcting code. So in a program, you have to have a lot of code that says, if this error comes in, solve it this way, right? Like if your computer program hangs up for a second, it's running into an error and there are escape clauses that say, okay, just dump all that information, start over and try to fix itself. There's a lot of that code in our own DNA. This is why when you have problems with your body and you get sick and stuff, your body's able to correct it because we should theoretically all be dying horribly from all kinds of new viruses and bacteria and stuff, and yet there's all this stuff in us that can keep us alive. It's pretty amazing. So that's the, that's the micro. The macro. I haven't done a full extensive research on this, but it is really amazing when you think about our universe and how big it is. And... Like I said, I, I, this is not really a, this is more of my theory, but there are some evidences to back this up. But I just want to go over this briefly. If you look at our own universe and the fact that we are, you see the model, it's a classic model, right? You have the sun in the middle, you have all these things spinning around. But the sun orbits the, a black hole at the center of our universe, right? So actually, we're kind of moving like this, like the sun's moving like this, and all the planets are kind of trailing in a spiral as it's going around this other thing. And the fact that we're able to keep our orbit consistently and the seasons stay consistent and all this stuff, there has to be something about the way that the planets are interacting with each other 
that's keeping that in place. Kind of when you see the, one of those big machines that it's like it all works together and it all kind of cycles and it can run infinitely because it's based off of gravity's energy. Similar. If you think about Jupiter, why does Jupiter have to be so big, right? It's massive. Like you can fit something like 16 Earths in it, probably more. That's just the last thing I, that's what I'm pulling from memory now. But if you actually look, there's actually graphics online that show the way that it orbits, its gravitational force is so great that all these meteorites are hitting it constantly. It's basically protecting, it's like the bodyguard of the Earth, just basically absorbing all the junk from the universe and blocking it constantly. And think about how to keep that thing in orbit so it doesn't suck up all the rest of the planets. And think about all the galaxies and all the stars and how they have to interact with each other and light that comes through. And it's, it's really amazing. If you look up something, there's a great, um, Answers to Genesis has a great um, presentation on fractals, fractal equations, right? This idea that you can see fractals in coastlines, you can see fractals in stars, and you can see fractals in broccoli, you can see fractals everywhere, this infinite information. And everywhere you look, there's evidence of a creator, right? This, this amazing design that's everywhere. And we see it, we see this evidence, and we're like, of course. But the natural mind has to say it has to happen by accident because there's already a pre-rejection of anything supernatural that could have done this stuff. But I would say this is something that is, can, remember, we're trying to open doors, we're trying to create a wedge, we're trying to put a foot into an argument. And these, if you know these arguments or if you find someone that's into either microbiology or perhaps like, you know, space, these are things that could actually interest them and they can look into these things. Any questions on that topic? The idea of using design in the universe for a, an argument for God? No? Okay. Yeah, one thing. Even, even Richard Dawkins says that just because something looks designed doesn't mean it is. Right. The blind watchmaker. That's how, right. that's mm-hmm. how, that's how blind they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, if you think about it, we don't look at, oh, say, if the argument that, that people have used classically is the, uh, if you see a watch, on a beach somewhere, and say it's an abandoned island somewhere that no one supposedly had been, but you see a watch on there, you're going to say, of course someone's been here. There's a pocket watch, right? Like, those things don't just assemble themselves, right? There has to be someone that assembled the pocket watch. And he said, and so he wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker. He's like, no, that's exactly what happened. Okay. I mean, I don't go to Mount Rushmore, you know, all the presidents' heads in the rock, and say, wow, erosion is amazing. Just how it, it eroded itself into that. It's like, clearly, I can look at it and say, someone designed that, right? And it happened naturally, right? And yet, because it's made of natural materials, you could make the argument, right? So there's all kinds of examples you can use that can help people understand where the, at least the Christian is coming from with our, with our seeing design in something. Now, people will say that you can't use intelligent design to do science. I, was, I would argue with that, but that's getting kind of out of our, what we're talking about today. I would simply say that where we start informs how we look at the world. So if I know that there's a designer who has designed things in such a way that things are consistent, that I can know tomorrow is going to be like today, right? Then I can do science because then I can know that when I'm looking at an interaction of, say, disease or something, that there's something going on beyond what, there's some logic and there's some order, there's some reason for it to happen, right? The idea of, of diagnosing an illness means that you know something is not working the way it should, and then I'm trying to correct it back to the way it should be, right? Okay, third argument on your list, anthropomorphic arguments. Fundamental aspects of human nature and human experience are best explained by the existence of God who created us this way. So, this is kind of interesting. Douglas Wilson, if you've heard that name, he, uh, he did a series of debates with uh, Christopher Hitchens. 
And one of the things that he did was he talked about, he used different arguments each time they kind of had a debate. And one time he used, he used the argument of beauty. This idea of like, because we know beautiful things exist, God exists, right? There, and he started to use this kind of a subjective understanding of things that are divinely ordered and inspired, which is kind of interesting because if you think about it, we think of art, at least I think most of us think of art as a very subjective thing, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You've probably heard that before, right? It's like one man's portrait that he thinks is beautiful. Another person looks at it and says, I don't get it. It's not for me, right? We have taste. We have the sense of things that look good or look, that don't look good. So for me, I, I've always thought of this as a um, kind of a, I don't want to say a weak argument, but it's something that to me d- didn't make a lot of sense. But I will say that for certain people, this is, this is very effective. It starts them to question, how do we all agree what things are like morality? How do we all agree what things are like things that are beautiful? Like we all look at a waterfall or we see like a nebula or a galaxy and we, we have a sense of beauty and awe when we look at those things. So with this argument, the anthropomorphic argument, there are several forms of it. Most often it focuses on uh, human ideas of beauty, human consciousness or, co- or the conscience written on our heart, uh, religious experiences, uh, sense of yearning for eternity, uh, human capacity for good or evil, right? So in ethics, morality, and conscience, an, a world ordered by a moral lawgiver is more humanly satisfying and explains human life better than, human, than the alternative. You've probably heard this before. Uh, Jeff Durbin uses this one a lot, where he says, you know, if you, are, if you believe in natural materialism, then why do you get angry when people do things that you don't like? Because it's really just an opinion, isn't it? Like, if the Holocaust happens, but they all agree over there in Germany that that was a great thing, that they're just cleaning up the streets, right? How can you object to that, right? It's just another society that all agreed that this was moral. But if there's something that goes beyond any particular society, now we're talking about some kind of axiomatic, something that we all assume before we've even ordered society, right? And this, this, that, can be, that can be useful. Uh, one of the examples Douglas Wilson says is, he says, if you're saying that all we have is natural materialism and all we have is chemical reactions in the brain, then you're kind of equivalent to like a can of Coca-Cola, right? Like you're, you're fizzing. Like if I shake you up and I pop it, like that chemical reaction is kind of what's happening in your brain. And you don't really have any kind of control over what's happening with the chemical reactions. And if I have another can of pop, I have a can of Mountain Dew, and I shake that up and I fizz it, are we really arguing over if Coca-Cola, like, are they having an argument? Are they, are they arguing with each other because they're both fizzing at the same time? And yet, that is how absurd the natural materialist is when, they're, when they argue with you if they really believe that. Even uh, there's one called, I think he's called the Cosmic Atheist, or I, I can't remember the, the one exactly, but he actually had a YouTube channel that was linked to the Douglas Wilson one. You know, it was one of those that got suggested. What was that? Oh, I was saying it was called the Cosmic Skeptic. Cosmic Skeptic, yeah. And, you know, it was one of those suggested videos after this Douglas Wilson one where he made that analogy. And he said, yeah, free will is an illusion. It, it can't really exist because we're all chemical reactions, all predetermined. Which I thought was actually pretty honest, right? That they would say, oh, yeah, if it's all reactions, then even a person believing in religious stuff is a chemical reaction that happens in their brain. So there's no point in arguing for them not to be religious because that's the reaction in their brain that's happening. But that is like, this goes against all we know about human society, right? This is the point. This is sometimes the hard thing about connecting the idea of morality and conscience and the idea of natural materialism 
once again, how do you bridge that from, okay, yeah, that is absurd, to God of the Bible? Because remember, this is about gospel, right? So I defended the faith. I showed how absurd your, your worldview is. How do I make the transition? So I want to help you understand that. The way I always transition these arguments is, if you see how absurd this is, but you know through your experience, your conscience, what's inside of you, that that's incorrect, that you know, no, there is objective morality. There is objective beauty. There are things we can know. My worldview explains that better. So come over here, right? Let's, let's talk, let's open up the Bible and see what God says about these things. You want to, about, you want to know about the problem of evil? evil? Like, you want to understand why bad things happen to good people and, you know, good things seem to happen to bad people? Well, let's open up Psalms and David's saying the exact same thing. He's saying, why do the evil people always seem to win, right? Like, these are things the Bible's not trying to hide. These are questions it deals with, right? And that's actually how you can start seeing them, that this is not some kind of religious text that just kind of, kind of preaches a dogma and then just says, believe all of these things that seem contradictory. It actually wrestles with these questions. It wrestles with questions about predeterminism. You know, if God can know all things and he's all-powerful, how do we have free will? How do we have agency? How can we make real choices that have real consequences? But that's how the Bible describes it, right? That we have real choices, we make real actions that have real weight, that have real consequences. And that's, that's a, you know, the problem is we're human. We're not God, right? So it's like we're trying to think of it in our binary true-false, and he's operating on, like, quantum mechanics and stuff like that, where all things can be true at different times and stuff. So um, getting out, I'm getting a little off track. Let's bring it back. So the idea here is that, you know, we're, we're going to use in this argument a, um, a framework of morality, a framework of beauty. We're using um, a different way to uh, approach the topic rather than argue over scientific texts or the Bible. It, can, it has its uses. I think you have to feel out a person. A person that tends towards more experience, they're more experiential, uh, will, will have these arguments a little bit more than, say, a philosophical or scientifically minded person. Um, one of the last arguments we have, let's see what the next one is here. How much time do we have left? So we talked about the transcendental. Let's go to number six, ontological. This is probably um, a very, uh, it, this is probably more difficult than, than the transcendental, honestly. The argument goes like this. God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. Right? It can't conceive of something greater than God. The greatest thing that could possibly be conceived of possesses the attribute of existence, because if it didn't, there is a thing still greater that could not be conceived. Therefore, God exists. Let me break down that second one since that's the hardest one to understand. The greatest thing that could possibly be conceived of, I as God, possesses the attribute of existence. This is kind of what our brother Julian was talking about, right? Is that do we use the term existence with God? But God is beyond existence. He, he never has a beginning. But if there was something that could exist before God, then he'd be greater than God, and then he, that would take the place of the greatest thing. Like I said, it's very philosophically minded. If you're interested in understanding this in a greater sense, uh, look up the ontological argument. The idea here, ontological is this idea of what comes before everything else. Like in the same way we talked about circular arguments of logic and reasoning, there has to, we're trying to form a basis of saying God is the starting point of everything, right? From him flows everything. And if you think about it, it really does. If people say, well, God says not to steal, is that arbitrary? It's like, no, God's not a thief. It flows from his nature, 
right? It says that the devil was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, right? And by contrast, what you're understanding is that God is not those things, right? He is anti-God, anti-Christ. He's in opposition to, uh, like, think of it as a, as, as a cat, as like the biggest light, like say the sun. And it doesn't matter what kind of light source you have, it's going to be engulfed by the greater thing, right, that forms light, right? Its light source will be completely consumed if the sun is right next to it, right? So there are, there are situations in which people can say, well, I know people that don't believe in God, but they're, they're moral, they're kind, whatever it is. But they can only be that way because God has given it to them. He's transmitted his or communicated his attributes to them in some kind of way, even imperfectly, because sin corrupts our natures, right? But we can still appeal to people because of that. So, any questions on all of those? Now is the time. I left a little bit of time, so we're just going to say if anything, have a question or comment. Oh, sure. Uh, so this class, which is Sunday school, starts at 9.45 and goes to 10.45, and we'll be going through uh, apologetics for another about four or five weeks. Main service starts at 10.45. 11. 11 o'clock. 10.45 is when this ends, and then you have 15 minutes to get some coffee. Yes, Chris? So for new believers who practice where do you recommend for a new believer to start in these arguments? Good, good question. Um, if you guys look up Apologia Church, um, Jeff Durbin has an apologetics course where he kind of runs through these in more detail. You'll be able to like slow it down, go through it. The other uh, website I find good for the transcendental argument is proofthatgodexists.org. Just look up that and you can, you have like literally a, a walkthrough of it. But honestly, the best time, to, the actual, the only way you're going to be good at parsing these arguments is through practice. You have to talk to your family members about it. You know, I'm sure there's no end of people that want to just have a talk about, you know, how we know what things are and how do we know things exist. Philosophical, right? When you move to the gospel, you're going to get some pushback, right? But just how they know what they know is real is something people are willing to talk about. Yes, brother. Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you don't know something, if you run into roadblocks, if there's questions that are asked that you didn't think of and you, you don't know, then you're going to have to come to the church. You're going to have to talk to other believers. You're going to have to tap into the knowledge of other people, you know, older and wiser than you, and you're going to get those answers, or at least you're going to get points in the right direction. And that's going to help you grow as a believer as well, right? Because you're challenging your mind. You're challenging your understanding of the Bible and what God communicates. Yes, Christian. Right. So I can't know every little detail right. of every single thing. And that should express some sort of humility to the person that you're speaking to. Right. I mean, that's the thing that I always think about when um, I think about the Trinity, right? The Trinity is a very hard concept for a lot of people to hold, myself included, right? Knowing all the, uh, like, you know, that there's only one God, that uh, there are three persons, and that they are all co-equal and co-eternal with one another. It's like knowing that is very hard to hold together, but it makes a lot of sense that that's the case because the way we understand a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, is we make comparisons in our mind, right? If we have an apple and a green apple, like a red apple and a green apple, 
we can make comparisons about the differences between the two because they're, even though they're both apples, they're different slightly. Same thing with people, same thing with rocks, right? But if there's nothing like God, if he's the only one of his being, there's only one being that is God, there's nothing to compare him to except himself, right? And that becomes difficult because now we don't have that co- contrast and comparison. Have you ever been told about a movie and you say, what's this movie like? Like Avatar, what's Avatar about? Oh, well, it's Titanic with aliens, you know? <laughs> Fish out of water. You know, like, you start making comparisons, right? Like, you can make comparisons because we've seen enough things like other things that we understand. We can start making connections. What's God like? Well, here's how God's revealed himself, right? We're going to have to go back to the Bible and explain how God's revealed himself and try to slot all the things he's revealed about himself together to have an understanding of what he's like, because you literally can't compare him to anything else. Whereas if I ask, like, what's Zeus like? Well, he's capricious. He, he's like a lot of people you know who don't care about his kids. He can turn into a goose, right? Like, you, there's all these things you can make comparisons to. And one of the other ar- arguments I think you can make for God, the true God of the Bible, is that he's uncomparable. It's, he's difficult to explain other than using the Bible because there's nothing to compare to him to. So, um, any other last questions? We're out of time here. I can do one more. Yes, brother. Yeah, so it says here, and forgive me if I didn't catch your point earlier. So you're using the word faith in terms of possibilities, right? Uh, given, the, given that faith in the Bible is confidence, like you know, Abraham believed in God's confidence, mm-hmm. so there was a, there was, it was just the expected of Abraham that it should be 100% mm-hmm. Right. Um, so the first argument there you have on your page is the argument from probability, right? So um, we, and the argument here is that you're right, like faith is something that we're confidently sure of. But the, what we're saying is that we, when we say we have faith in something, we're trying to help the other person understand that they also have faith in things as well. There's things that they can't know with 100% scientific surety that they assume to be true. So the question is, if we both agree we both have faith in things, What's more probable to be true, the truth of the Bible or the truth of natural materialism? Like I said, the problem with starting with evidential or argumentative philosophical arguments is you have trouble then connecting over to the God of the Bible. But these are, these are door openers is the way I look at it, right? The defense of the faith is all about answering reasonably so then you can then have the offense of the gospel and talk to people afterwards. Never lose sight of that, right? We don't want to just have arguments that go for two hours. We want to give people the gospel. That's really the goal of all of this. Okay. Thank you, guys. If you have any other questions, I'm, I'm always here. You can ask me, and even if I can't respond to you, I'll write them down, and we'll talk about them at the beginning of next class. So let's close in prayer.